Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hello, future minority doctors. Glad to have you all join us once again. Today, I have the great pleasure of interviewing Dr. Ricardo Salas, who has a medical degree and a master's degree in public health. Dr. Ricardo is a hematologist oncologist doctor. I know, I know. What in the world is a hematologist oncologist doctor? I didn't even know what this was when I was in high school or probably even college. Well, we will be finding out more about this specialty today, but to put it short, this is a doctor who deals with problems in your blood or if you have cancer. So go ahead and turn the volume up and listen to what it's like being a blood and cancer doctor. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Ricardo, as I know you are a very busy doctor, husband, and father. Sulma, it's my pleasure to be here and and certainly to share in this venture uh, and certainly uh, share this specifically with our future minority doctors. So thank you for the opportunity. Wonderful. So before we jump into the world of what it's like being a blood and cancer doctor, I would like our future doctors listening today to know who Dr. Ricardo is. Can you start by telling us about your upbringing and your background first? Absolutely, yes. I think it's uh, very important. So, you know, I I grew up in Selma, California, near Fresno. For those of you who know know where Fresno is, Selma is a very actually small town. It's maybe about 20 minutes uh, south of of Fresno. Population is really small. I think when I was growing up, it started off maybe about 12,000. When I left Selma, it was maybe 20,000 or so. But it's a small farming community. My parents, uh, grew, we grew up as farm working um, children, my sister and I. We traveled up and down San Joaquin Valley, picking anything and everything under the sun. And uh, up until maybe a, up until the age of about 18, believe it or not. Then I started working for Burger King. So then <laughs> I worked for Burger King while I was actually going to school. I actually ended up going to community college first before I transferred to UC uh, Berkeley. And, uh, and so I got my undergraduate degree from UC Berkeley. And then after that, I ended up getting a master's in public health at San Diego State and then followed by um, medical school at uh, Charles uh, Drew University UCLA uh, joint program. And that's where I spent uh, at least four or five years there uh, before starting residency. But I did pretty much all my training in Los Angeles. Uh, So I did my residency training at uh, Olive UCLA. And then I also completed my fellowship training with a joint program there at UCLA. All of you, and it was a joint partner with Kaiser and Cedar Sinai Medical Center, and finally, finally finished in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> the journey, I know, it's a long journey. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But you know, I think you know what's unique about uh, at least about the, my upbringing in terms of at least uh, certainly the tra- trajectory is very non-traditional. You know, it's very non-traditional because I actually ended up doing community college, and then I went to undergrad, then did a master's in public health, then I worked for a while. I worked for the American Cancer Society, so I worked in San Diego for some time before I actually went to med school. But med school had always been the number one priority. It's been my objective in terms of reaching. And, uh, and so I just you know, went, uh, went to, uh, to a different path, but still got to the same place, if you will. It took me a little bit longer, but I got there. Yep, that's what matters. What degree did you get in undergrad? Uh, in undergrad, I did molecular cell biology. But if you ask me today if I would, can go back and do it all over again, you know, I think I would do 
cultural anthropology. I would do probably something that I know I probably wouldn't be able to get to do again. Because that's really the opportunity for you to really explore. You know you're going to go into the sciences. You know you're going to you know, deal with you know, a lot of the sciences for the rest of your life. But really, undergraduate, your undergraduate years are really the time to also explore you know, different options, not in the sense of careers. I knew I wanted to go into med school, but it would have been, you know, I always was interested in cultural anthropology. And I think probably what I would have done. Don't get me wrong. Molecular cell biology fits my, my field perfectly. At the time, I didn't realize I was going to go into oncology, but it came together nicely because that's all I deal with, um, in, at least in our career and our fields here in oncology. And are you the first doctor in your family? I am. So I have a, an older sister who's an LVN. She works in a nursing home. My parents, um, I think they barely finished elementary school. So um, yes, I am the first in my family to go to college, first in the family to be a doctor. And uh, yeah, I don't think I have any aunts and uncles who are doctors or cousins. No, nobody. I'm pretty much the first of everything. That's the journey, right? <laughs> you know, I got to say, it, you know, and I think uh, I, I think, uh, you know, going that path and just it's, it's a trial and error, you know, and it's like your parents can only help you so much. But I'll tell you one thing. I think the most important part of this whole process is, as you mentioned, it is a journey. And even though, you know, my parents can only help me so much, but there was I feel like um, God put people in my life who help mentor me through the process and, um, and and to help get me to the place where I am today. And the one thing's for sure, you know, I think. You know, becoming a doctor for me was, it's not a job, it's not a career, but a vocation. I feel like that's, that's, that was always my purpose, even though I took a very non-traditional route, but I always felt in my heart that there was no plan B. This was the plan, plan A, and, and that's it. I was going to become a doctor. I knew I was going to do it. I, I just felt it. I didn't know how. If I just had to figure it out, and you know, and, and sasa pansaso sometimes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and 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 that's it's part of the journey, part of the humbling experience. You know, and part of being humble is very important in in this particular field, and so and many humbling experiences. But I think that's who makes us who we are, and part of this vocation. I really feel like you know, any vocation, whether it be a teacher, an attorney. Uh, the male person, I mean, you know, we're all serving others in one way or another. And that's the most important thing. I think when we ask ourselves, you know, what is our role in this earth? Or, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? Or, you know, the first question is, how can I serve others best? And how can I pick a, a field that helps me achieve that? And that, like I said, that field could be anything. Your financial advisor, you know, I mean, (laughs) so many different roles, but you're serving others. And I think that's the most important thing. And for me, I think God put me in this position to become a a physician, put me in this earth to become a doctor and fulfill that vocation. I could definitely agree with that sentiment. If not, I don't know how we would stick with this long journey, right? (laughs) It's hard, but it's very rewarding. Absolutely. Every, every minute of it. And I think uh, for our audience who are seeing this, I think it's very encouraging for uh, our audience to understand that as long as we have the willpower, you know, that passion, that drive, things will absolutely fall into place how, you know, how they're supposed to be. And eventually, as long as you don't give up, you will achieve your goals and your journey. Absolutely. 
Thank you so much for those inspirational words because it's a great way to start this. So that way we got open ears because I'm sure somebody is feeling self-doubt at one point or another and the entire way I would say. So you chose to be a hematologist oncologist. Can you explain exactly what that is? And just for people who don't know, because I know I would have been a high school or college student that may have not known what that was. And then what a typical day, if you have a typical day, um, what work is like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, uh, hematologist oncologist, it's actually two, two parts. Uh, you actually get board certified in these two different disciplines. One is medical oncology. The second one is hematology. Let's start off with hematology. Hematology is basically the, it's the study of blood and the, the diseases associated with blood. So what does that mean? That could be your typical anemia. We see a lot of anemia in the community. So it just means your red blood cells are a little bit low for various reasons, right? There are, and we call these sometimes conditions that can be either benign, meaning non-cancerous and or cancerous, so blood-related cancers and disorders, et cetera. But uh, anemias, um, some of you may have heard of thalassemias, for example. So it could be like an inherited disorder that comes from generation to generation. Some populations are a little bit more predisposed to it that can also contribute to anemia, et cetera. But it's really just the study of blood and its associated diseases. And like I said, those diseases can be non-cancerous or cancerous, like leukemia, who we have all you know, heard of. And so that's in a nutshell, that's kind of the study of, of hematology. And it's very, uh, it's, it's challenging, it's very cerebral. I mean, there's so many diseases, so many different mutations. Uh, we, we don't, I mean, the, the blood is so important, carries so many life essential, um, well, for example, oxygen, right? Um, which is so important. Without oxygen, we don't survive. Without blood, we don't survive, you know? So it's an important mechanism keeping us healthy and alive. The study of oncology is obviously the study of cancer. And those, those, what's the difference between in the sense of, well, well, leukemia is a cancer. How come that's not necessarily oncology? Well, it is oncology. But the study of oncology itself also focuses on solitary tumors. So you've all heard of a colon cancer or a, a lung cancer or a brain cancer. These are solitary tumors in which uh, medical oncology um, studies and treats, et cetera. But we also, under oncology, also treat lymphomas and leukemia. So it's very broad uh, for the most part. Hematology is getting a little bit more focused in those uh, other avenues, as I previously mentioned, of course, benign, which are non-cancerous causes of, you know, different types of uh, blood disorders. You know, the question also is why, why hematology oncology? You know, why, why did we, uh, why did I choose that field? You know, um, and the reason for that was probably more from an experience uh, growing up. I, I saw my aunt suffer from uh, ovarian cancer, which is one of the most, unfortunately, one of the, one of the most cancers that has the, 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 the worst prognosis because typically it's caught late. And unfortunately for her, it was caught very late in her, um, in her course. And, uh, Fortunately, she did not have insurance. She had a hard time accessing insurance and healthcare. I saw, you know, the, well, I thought it was just very unfair. You know, I saw the, how, how much she struggled um, and how much she suffered simply because she just had lack of access to care for various reasons. And um, she suffered. She, unfortunately, you know, we, we were with her with the start, from the start to the end. And, and at the end, she suffered a lot. And I think that, you know, that really also, for me, it kind of just set something off, especially, you know, in the field of oncology. And I think I've always had them in the back of my mind since that experience. I knew I always wanted to become a doctor, but I didn't know what kind of doctor. And so I think that that kind of really 
planted the seed. Fast forward to today and what my typical day would look like. You know, my typical day comes, you know, I, I see anywhere between 20 and 25 patients in clinic a day. Um, and it's a mix of patients. Some patients come in to see me for anemia. Some patients come in to see me because they have a new diagnosis of a cancer. And so um, in a, in, on average, I probably see maybe about, uh, maybe about 60% cancer, solitary cancers, maybe about 40% benign heme, meaning anemias, other, other blood-related disorders that are not cancer. And then I also see new patients. So a lot of the, you know, 20, 25 patients doesn't mean these are all new patients to me. A lot of them are follow-ups, meaning patients that, are, that I'm following along and, and trying to get them better, you know, for, for various reasons. And uh, new patients in a typical day, I may see anywhere between two to three new patients uh, in one day. And why do I not see, you know, 20 new patients in one day? Well, you know, every patient requires, um, well, they require as much time as they need, but um, you won't get through the day <laughs> seeing 20 new consults, of course. But um, I have we, have, we work with nurses. I work with nurse practitioners who also help me execute, you know, different plans for patients. A typical day also includes following up patients who are receiving chemotherapy. So as I previously mentioned, I treat patients with cancers, of course, and solitary cancers. So for example, lung cancer, a patient who's on chemo, have to make sure that they are tolerating their chemotherapy, make sure that uh, they're not having adverse reactions. Uh, making sure that everything's in place to get them through their chemo. And there's a certain number of chemo, chemo cycles or the amount of chemo that we give patients. So again, you know, we have to make sure we don't give them too much chemo and so forth. So it's really, you know, um, helping patients get through their, their chemotherapy treatments and so forth and making sure that uh, um, they're not progressing, the cancer's not growing. So that also, you know, requires uh, making sure that imaging is also ordered at the right time. And so you work really, it's a, it's a disciplinary team approach where you also have to work with radiologists. You have to work with, uh, like I said, your nurse practitioners. You have to work with your radiation oncologists, your social workers. So every day I, I uh, involve them in the care of, of patients. So it's, it's a very uh, multifaceted, multidisciplinary approach when you're caring for patients, particularly in this field. Do you work in a clinic or a hospital? Or both? Good question. So, yeah, so I work in both. So um, when we're in clinic, um, usually this means the you know, patients come at a scheduled time for their follow-up appointments and so forth. When I work in the hospital, that's typically when I see new patients or if my patients end up uh, being admitted into the hospital, I follow uh, them along in the hospital and see them in the hospital along with new patient consults. So these new patient consults can arise you know, for various reasons, patients throw up in the ER because they, um, you know, they have a mass uh, in their neck or something, and it turns out to be lymphoma. And so we would essentially be called to um, follow this patient and work this patient up. And eventually this patient ends up following up with us in the, in the clinic. Okay. And then about how long is your work week, would you say? Yeah, good question. So um, the work week, so I, I'm, I'm lucky because I um, have a little bit of time in terms of my schedule. And I work four days out of the week. So I work Monday through Thursday, and I have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday off. When I'm on call, I work probably 10 to 12 days straight. And I'm on call, maybe, I'm on call once a month. So out of that, uh, out of that month, you know, I might work one weekend plus additional days there that you know, add up to maybe 10 to 12 days for the most part. But 
the hours in, in on average for you know one week you're looking at maybe 40 uh between 45 50 hours maybe working four days when you're not on call and and you know i see patients mainly about between 8 from 8 30 in the morning usually when my morning starts in clinic to maybe about 3 30. okay so it gives at least the listeners a good idea of what life is like if you become a hematologist oncologist so yes absolutely and what is the best thing you like about what you do and then the worst part of it? Yes, very good question. So let's start off with the best thing. You know, again, as I mentioned, it's really serving others. And, and, I'll, and for me, the most gratifying and the most rewarding for me is when patients, you know, you can see how grateful they are. And the most gratifying is when I come across a patient who's a farm worker who's in my clinic, in front of me, whom I am able to help. I say that because that was the whole purpose for me to go into medicine, you know, working as a farm worker. I saw the how disenfranchised our community was and how, you know, the, the access to resources were very limited, not to mention discrimination, you know, and that really pissed me off. And so I knew, I knew that I had the opportunity to experienced that. And I also had the opportunity to go to school. My father always said, you know what, no matter what you do, you always have to go to school. You gotta, you know, that's something that no one will be able to take away from you. And so I did that, you know, I, uh, hence why I pursued medicine, of course, I knew I was going to be an attorney or, or, or a doctor, one of the two, I needed to serve people at, at the highest level. In my opinion, I mean, that was just for me. That was, that was just at least my thoughts at the time. So yeah, I ended up to, uh, you know choosing medicine, but uh, to have that farm worker in front of me is the most gratifying. And even if they paid me in oranges, and they don't even have to pay me, they could just give me a hug and I'd be so happy, you know, um, because I knew that this was the whole purpose. And this, was, this is how this has come full circle for me is where I started and where I'm ending, if you will, or at least, you know, once, uh, once I finished my career, I just, you know, I ended it in a community ended up in a community where was, I treat a lot of farm workers. And that was my purpose, is coming back to my community to serve others, especially the medically underserved. Now, you know, I also serve, I also help people who are, who have different, they have different socioeconomic status, you know, I mean, in terms of, you know, very wealthy people. But I'll tell you one thing, you know, when you have cancer, for example, it is the most humbling experience. Doesn't discriminate, right? Does not discriminate. <laughs> mm-hmm. One thing for sure, and every it's a very humbling experience for many patients, you know. So you know, for my patients who obviously, you know, going back to my farm working patients, for example, you know, knowing that I'm going to be able to guide them through this whole journey and serve them and help them and get them through this, so rewarded. And you can see it. You know, they're so so appreciative, so appreciative, and uh, that is very rewarding for me. Now, of course, you mentioned what was the bad thing about your your job? Well, yes, I mean, given bad news like, you know, miss so and so, you have cancer, and you might only have you might only have six months to live. Okay, but it's really how you frame things. I mean, and how you view things, right? I, I I think that's you know many people think I can't become a cancer doctor. There's no way. It's so sad. But if you think about it, it, it is hard giving patient that kind of that kind of news and but if it's going to be anybody it better be someone who's compassionate 
someone who's empathetic, someone who's sincere, and why not me? I would rather than somebody who is not in the, you know, someone else giving this news, but in a very cold, nonchalant way, if you will. And not only that, I know that I can't cure everyone. And sometimes it's not about curing everyone. Sometimes it's about helping them transition with peace, dignity, and respect through this process. And that's also just as important as curing them. Because if you can help them achieve peace and their family, sometimes that's, that's even more important. And so, you know, that, that's probably the toughest part, you know, is helping, is giving and delivering bad news or, you know, miss so-and-so, your cancer's come back or it's progressed or what have you. And so that is hard. It's not, it's never easy. It's never easy. But I'm glad that I am there to help them through that process. As an oncologist who sometimes hears, well, you, you, you have to share a lot of bad news and go through a lot of death, you know, with loved ones. It's hard. How do you as a doctor process that or deal with that? Yeah, so good question. You know, you really have to, especially in oncology and dealing with a lot of, uh, well, you know, a lot of bad news, you have to really make time for self-care. And that's one thing that's really hard for us as doctors to do. We're, we're so busy taking care of everyone else that sometimes we forget to take care of ourselves. Now, how do you do that? Well, you have to kind of go back and, 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 and think about, well, what, do, what are the things that I used to like to do? <laughs> and so, what, you know, what were my, yeah, what are the things that I'd like to do outside of medicine, per se, you know? And, and that's important. You have to make the time, right? That's the first and most important thing. So you have to find outlets right? So what do I like to do? Well, you know, I love being outdoors. I haven't gotten to do this much and I should really listen to my own advice, but you know, I used to love to surf a lot. And whenever I get a chance, I do. But surfing, you know, for me, that just brings me back to serenity and peace and just allows me to forget and just put things aside temporarily and recharge. Um, For me, it just helps me connect with mother nature on a different level. I like hiking, you know, I like doing, uh, sometimes I like to go golfing with friends and just engaging with friends. And so, you know, those, those are important things, you know, to, um, you know, again, self-care and just outlets, but finding outlets, uh, exercise, of course, you know, just making time, doesn't mean you have to go to the gym, but really just going for a walk or a hike or something, you know, those things are, are, are important to keep sane, if you will, and, and, and keep your mental health. That's the other thing that's very important in this field. You can easily burn out, especially mentally, not just physically, but mentally, of course. And maintaining that mind, body, spirit, soul, and keeping that in equilibrium is so, so important. And that definitely requires time. You have to understand that you're just as important. And if you're not, you know, if you're a foundation and if you're not aligned, then, you know, it's, you're not going to serve your patients best. You really have to take care of yourself in that way. Glad you shared that. We actually focus a large part of our podcast. We have specific episodes for self-care because we're trying to teach students from high school and when you're in college, that concept, because it starts there and you have to continue to purposely practice it throughout and being gentle with yourself as well. So glad you shared that. It's so true. It has to be an adopt. It has to be absolutely, you know, thank, and thank God you're starting early, you know, because it does start early. This is 
something you have to adopt early on. It has to be part of your life. It's, it has to be routine for you. Um, and you're right. It takes time. It's an investment. But, you know, eating breakfast is time and an investment. Taking the shower is time and an investment, you know. And it has to just be integrated as part of your routine. Exactly. Now, you said you considered, you said I would either be a doctor or a lawyer. Is there anything else you ever you ever considered before becoming a doctor? <laughs> As a kid, my mom always said I used to want to be a, a policia. So I used to say, policia, policia. And, <laughs> and I was super young. And that, and I think <laughs> that, uh, well, I think that what intrigued me about that is more than anything is probably the forensic science. So like more like FBI forensics, you know. Uh, or profile even now nowadays, right? Yeah, it was it was that. Um, but really, honestly, early on, you know, when when I was deciding, you know, what my journey was going to be, and as cliche as this may sound, Zulma, but or cheesy or however it may sound, but you know, one day I was sitting down with a couple of friends and we were kind of just talking about what our careers goals would look like, and I was I don't know, I think I was in high school or something. And I knew that I, I, whatever career I chose, um, I wanted to serve others in the highest capacity. And at the time when I thought about it, and I remember clear as day, you know, when I was sitting there with my friends, we were sitting down on a round table near, uh, I think we were near my friend's pool, um, and there was four of us. And it was in the evening, uh, around 7 p.m., and I think it was the summertime. I remember... I could have swore that God said, you're going to become a doctor. As clear as day. Ever since then, there was no looking back. I had doubts. And I had doubts because I was like, how am I going to become a doctor? I am poor. My parents don't have money. How am I going to? You have to be rich to become a doctor, you know, or a lawyer or whatever, or go to school or go to college, you know. My parents, you know, my friends haven't gone. They don't go. You know, I grew up in um place in an area where there was a lot of gangs and most of my parents all of my friends except for one didn't even graduate high school and they all ended up in gangs and some dead some one in a mental hospital others i don't have lost contact with them i that was my environment i just i didn't think that i was going to become you know early on i thought oh i college i don't know how do you even pay for this you know but something in me was like I'm going to do it. God has a plan for me. He said, I'm going to become a doctor. There was no plan B. And then I discovered loans. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. We're there. I'm just <laughs> going to get a bunch of loans. I'll figure out how to pay for them later on. And that's it. But my, my, my willpower was always there, you know, and, and, um, and I, I love to learn, you know, I love to learn new things. I was really, my the sciences were strong for me. I was gifted with uh, at least, you know, liking math and physics and organic chemistry and those things and not reading. But later on, I realized how important English is in terms of English literature. <laughs> it's just as important as math and the sciences. But that being said, um, I discovered loans and I was like, yeah, there was, there was no turning back ever since then. And little by little chiseling away, figuring out one door closes, another one will open. And for me, I just knew. Did you ever end up joining a gang or no? Because you I, said a lot you know, of your friends. Yeah, you know, I didn't necessarily, no, not, it was not involved with gangs. Fortunately, 
the wrath of my father was always in the back of my mind. I'm sure you, <laughs> <laughs> you would. I know what that wrath is. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, uh-uh. And fortunately, he kept me straight, you know, even though my friends were taking a different path and they had, you know, their upbringing or our upbringing was very similar. But of course, I mean, you know, I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I thank God every day that I didn't join a gang. But it was there. Drugs yeah. were there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got myself into trouble because I was just with the wrong people at the wrong time. But I knew that if I kept, you know, at some point I knew that if I kept going down that path with those, with those, with my friends that I grew up with, you know, childhood friends, we're talking about, you know, when we were four or five years old and growing up together, they were like my brothers. I knew that if I was going to go down that path, I was going to end up like them. And I switched gears right away. And, and that was, you know, that was probably when I started that was probably my freshman, sophomore year in high school. Then, you know, I had a small group of friends that, you know, we shared the same mentality in terms of, you know, we wanted more. We wanted to get out of our small town and experience the world, you know. And, and again, you know, I think uh, uh, God has always just kind of pointed me in the right direction and put the right people in my life for, for, for that reason, to use me as a tool, I feel. Definitely. I have similar experiences as well. Sometimes you wake up and you're like, how did I get here? <laughs> I'm glad I did. <laughs> <laughs> so little birdie told me that you're also an officiant. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Can you tell me more about that and where'd that come from? Was it before being a doctor after? Uh, that's too funny. No, you know, it was after. Um, so the way it worked out and the way it played out is that, um, my sister-in-law was going to get married, I think, uh, as soon as like COVID hit. So uh, unfortunately, she I think they canceled her wedding about three or four times. She was devastated, and it was just traumatic for everybody. And so and she had an, I think she had an efficient initially, but then everything just fell apart. Long story short, I think she had asked me to marry them. Uh, and so... I was like, okay, and I, I, I had not gone through the online course thing, you know, if you will, and I didn't know at the time even how to begin, but I knew that people actually, you know, just went online and got a certificate and became an efficient, and so I ended up becoming an efficient and marrying my sister-in-law, and that was in August, <laughs> and then, well, since then, um, I actually ended up um, one of my patients found out through our conversations that I was an officiant and um, her goal was to see her daughter get married. And uh, we had maybe three or four months of treatment. It will enter her treatment. One day she came to me and she was like, just kind of jittery and just, I knew something was up. And then she asked me, I'm so sorry, Dr. Salas. I'm so embarrassed to ask, but I heard you, I know you said you were inefficient. Can you marry my daughter? <laughs> and then I, I mean, I was obviously very flattered and honored. And of course, how am I going to say no to my sweet little old lady patient, you know? And, uh, and so I, we ended up marrying her daughter and got her. She got through the day well without, you know, any issues my, my patient did. And, uh, and that was one of her goals, you know, that was important to her. And so, you know, we figured out a way and we made it happen. And so I am for hire. I am free. <laughs> sure, okay. I don't charge for this. So 
see, you can be a doctor and many other things. You can even marry people <laughs> and your patients. Just don't marry absolutely. your patients. <laughs> yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I think you bring up a really good, important point. But you know, other avenues, right, of serving others. Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to be a doctor or an attorney to serve others, right? I mean, going back to that, I think it's, you know, the other thing that I think the audience should also understand and, and very early on that, you know, the make to make the greatest impact, in my opinion, at least as a physician, medical school teaches you, it gives you the tools, right? Being a, a human, a good person, that's innate. That's, you don't learn that. You just are that. The world is a tough place. And medical school doesn't really teach you once you're out in terms of being a doctor, the big picture. What do I mean by that? Well, in my opinion, and I knew this kind of, fortunately, I understood this early on, that the greatest way to try to influence change for the better for patients, especially underserved patients, is you, you not only have to understand medicine, but you have to understand the business aspect of medicine, and you also have to understand the policy aspect of medicine. And so understanding how that works gives you so much ammunition in terms of being effective in change. And so, you know, my long-term goals may be to carry out more either an administrative role or even carry out maybe more of a political role uh, of some sort. But I think understanding how that works is so important in being a leader and and being effective in change. And so that was one of the reasons why I ended up doing a master's in public health. Some patients, some people might want wondering, well, why'd you do it? Do you have to do a master's in public health? No, you don't. And right now, actually, a lot of medical schools are offering like a five-year program where you do med school and you get a master's degree in one year in either public policy, an MBA, public health, et cetera. And there's so many, you know, different master degree programs that you can do jointly with medical school. And they do that and offer that because I think they realize how important understanding not just the micro aspect of medicine, but also in a broader respect, the macro, uh, not just on an individual level, but a family level, community level, uh, and so forth. And, and I think, you know, understanding that is so important in being impactful. And that was one of the reasons why I did a master's in public health. I think my next journey, my wife doesn't know this, and she's not. She's going to be like, "What are you crazy?" I won't tell her to listen is, to this. Okay, <laughs> is to do an MBA program, and so I think that's going to be later on, and so um, that's that's going to be my next journey in terms of academics. Is maybe do an MBA. I, I agree. It's you do have to shoot high to make a change and an impact. Yeah. With it, knowing there's going to be challenges. But I think it's important that you did highlight that because for the youth and people who, why the reason we did this podcast is because we need more minority physicians. Absolutely. Because in order to create that change, we need more diversity. And as we've said it many times, there's only about 5% of all physicians in this country that are minority physicians. So um, we need that. Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely need more representation. And and the one thing too is that it doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, how much money you have or don't have. If you have the willpower and your intentions are good, you can do anything. And it, as as 
cheesy as it sounds, but it's so true. You know, it's so true. You have to will it and want it. There, are, It's not going to be easy, but nothing good is, you know, in the sense that, you know, th- this very rewarding field for us is not was not an easy journey. We had to sacrifice a lot. It was a very humbling experience. And for those audience members who think that, oh, you need to be a straight A student, you know, you need to be valedictorian, you need to invent a cure for cancer before getting into med school. Okay, sure, it helps, but it's, I'm none of those. I'm not, I was not a straight A student. I did not get any awards. I think I was barely like a B plus student, if that, you know? I did not invent the cure for cancer. But I man, I had the ganas and I had the will and I and I knew I was I was determined and, and I was pissed. I wanted to be uh, effective and uh, I wanted to change things, you know. And so you don't have to be any of those. Yeah, those things help, you know. And yes, it's you. You should look into those things. You should strive to do the best that you can. Don't get me wrong, right? And one one thing for sure. Get a mentor, you know, mm-hmm. find somebody, <laughs> get somebody, join a program. And, and because, you know, oh, well, you know, and it's never poor me. Do not feel sorry for yourself. Okay. It's never poor me. It, it, it's the minute you feel sorry for yourself, you, you're going to set yourself up for failure. What you need to do is just brush yourself off, get back up, focus on the objective, and know why you're doing what you're doing. If you're doing this for the right reasons, you will get there. Yeah, I failed the exams. Yeah, it's demoralizing. Even in high school, maybe you never failed an exam. And then you get to college, you fail an exam. Or you get to med school, you fail an exam or what have you. Know? And, but, you know, again, it, it, you get back up. You learn from it. And you focus on your weaknesses and prove those. Capitalize on your strengths and move forward. The minute... You give up the power to whatever negative energy is around you, you lose. You have to decide how much power am I taking back? How much power am I going to give this exam, um, making me feel like a failure or you know, whatever the case may be? Um, if you give all your power to that exam, you end up setting yourself up for failure. You got to take that power back. You know, the exam does not define who you are. Somebody says something mean to you. Uh, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna achieve anything. You're not gonna be anything. You're gonna be a loser. Trust me, I've had that. I had a teacher tell me that in high school, and uh, I was like, "Wow, you need to go meditate somewhere in the forest." But you know, I, I, I it, yeah, I had the teacher tell me that. You know, and fortunately, I didn't believe him. You know, but you know, you're gonna get people in your journey into this path that are gonna be very negative and negative energy and so forth. You really need to stay away from those people, you know. But again, get that power back. You know, don't let these things define who you are. You know who you are. You know your objectives. Wonderfully said. So, as you heard, which many of you have heard in many of our other episodes, here you are. You're listening to doctors that are first generation doctors, just like Dr. Salas. Our parents only went up to elementary school, grew up in a very poor area, worked, you know, working with the family and, you know, just regular jobs. And we failed exams. We had people tell us we couldn't do it and we did it. 
So really keep those words in your mind as you're going through the process. Anything else, Dr. Salas, that you would want to mention before we finish up? Yeah, you know, I think um, be proud of who you are. The person that you were a month ago is not the same person you are today. And you're going to continue to evolve into good people, if you will, you know, and believe in yourself. It's hard. I think we're our worst critics. Sometimes it's hard to believe in ourselves. Everybody else might, but sometimes it is hard for us to believe in ourselves. But I think if you focus on the objective and you focus on why you're doing what you're doing, I promise you, you will get there. Remember, there's only plan A. There's not a plan B. And if you keep that in mind and you keep that in focus, um, you will get there. Now, you don't have to get there in a straight line. Everyone's journey is different. They get there. Some take the five. Some take the 405. I mean, I don't know. But you get there, right? And so I think, you know, having that objective in mind and, again, you know, really being proud of who you are. Yeah, I, I think that that is very important. And there is no such thing as failure. Failure comes when you give up. All there is is moving forward. Like I said, you do have to learn from uh, failure, a failed exam or a failed whatever case may be. But, you know, you learn from that. You strengthen your weaknesses, like I said, and you capitalize on your strengths and you move forward and you just don't give up. Be persistent. And there are so many people out there who want to help you. I promise you that, including myself and especially Zuma. This is why she's doing what she's doing. She believes in the next generation as well as I do. And we certainly, you know, this is to encourage, you know, the next generation and not to give up. And there's definitely very few of us out there. And there's a lot of of patients out there who look just like us, who need us. So, you know, keep moving forward. Well, I couldn't have said that better. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Dr. Ricardo today and learned how big the world of medicine is. I am sure there are some ears today that heard bells ringing that this career path might be the right one for you. Dr. Ricardo did it and so can you. Thanks again, everyone. Remember to share this podcast with your friends and family as we are here to inspire a new generation of doctors, regardless of your situation. Peace and love, everyone.